Father, we thank You, Lord, that You keep an eye on us. That, Lord, You don't look away. That You don't leave us to our own devices. That, Lord, You you come to us. Father, we thank You that You have come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're thankful, Lord, that You're coming again to bring us home and to bring home all those who would choose You, all those who would receive You, all those who would accept Your outstretched offer of grace. I pray today, Father, as we head into this next section of John, that You will enlighten us. Father, some of these stories, this one included, are familiar to us. Would You show us, Father, Your intention and Your heart and help us to draw near to You. And we just pray for Your blessing now on this time. In Jesus' name, Amen. John chapter 6. Beginning in verse 15. We're going to overlap where we left off last Sunday. We skipped ahead on Wednesday night and finished out the rest of the chapter, but this is a story I think we all ought to share and hear together. John chapter 6, verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king, withdrew again to the mountain by Himself alone. Now when evening came, His disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, And Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind that was blowing. And then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. (laughs) But He said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive Him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. There's a helpful phrase that I like to offer when Cheryl or Hayden or or one of the kids at home are are looking for something, can't find something, don't know where they've left something. I'm always there to help. (laughs) Why do you laugh? And the phrase that I have been known to use is a place for everything and everything in its place. According to Homesessive.com, yes, there is a place called Homesessive.com, according to a study of 3,000 adults carried out by eSure Home Insurance, the top three most misplaced items are house keys, second is actually wedding rings. I <laughs> know, I was shocked too. And thirdly, cell phones. How many of you are at home having your husband or wife or someone call your cell phone so you can find it? Yeah, I mean all the time. Will you ring my line? Because we don't know where we put these things. I told you before, it's wall phones or nothing for me. we got to go back. I want the phone on the wall. I want it attached. I want to be able to only walk maybe three feet away. I like the stretchy thing. It's fun to play with when you're talking. Anyway... On an average, people spend about 10 minutes every day tracking down personal items. Research indicates people typically lose up to 9 items a day. 
which calculates to 198,743 missing items in a lifetime. Nice job. (laughs) Furthermore, this study shows that four out of ten couples often argue over such missing things. Now, I know that never happens in any of your homes. In our study through John, something's missing. There's something missing in this gospel. We are six chapters in, and a set of keys are are just missing. They're curiously absent from the pages of John, omissions that should grab our attention, at least cause us to wonder, why? Why aren't these included? Why did John leave these out? After all, they are all over the synoptic Gospels. They are prevalent in Matthew, prevalent in Mark, prevalent in Luke. In fact, they play a large part in unlocking the mysteries and the teachings of Jesus, which is why I call them keys. I'm talking about parables. You will not find a single parable of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And in addition to that, John doesn't even use the word parable. Not a single time. Now I know you King James only people, if you have a King James version and you're reading that, you would say, yes, there is the use of the word parable in the Gospel of John. John chapter 10, verse 6, which reads in the King James translation, this parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what they were which he spake unto them. For one thing, we no longer spake, it gets all over people. (laughs) But King James got it wrong. The word is not parable in any ancient text. The word where it says this parable spake Jesus unto them, them, the word is not parabole, that's the word for parable. We see parabole all over Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It means to throw alongside. Para, to throw. or Para means alongside. And bole, to throw. Throw alongside. And when we studied the parables, we talked about that. That they are, they are stories that express an unknown truth with a known truth. You know, Jesus would throw alongside an unknown truth, a known truth. And as you listen to the known story, you can start to grasp the unknown or the mysterious. Parabole. But that word is not used once by John. What he uses in John 10.6 and in a couple of other places is the word paroimia. Paroimia, which means proverb or a figure of speech. So the King James translators got it right the next three times. John 16.25, where it says, These things I have spoken unto you in proverbs. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak to you in Proverbs, but I shall shew you plainly of the Father. Which means show, not put your shoes on. I'm trying. When we first started the bridge, I, I sat down. I thought, okay, what Bible translation am I going to teach out of? Because I wanted Bibles in the back. I wanted everybody to be on the same page, as it were. Hey, you can use whatever translation you want. But I was looking for the most accurate, word-for-word, and understandable translation. I wanted all of that. And I landed on two. For accuracy and for word-for-word translation. The New American Standard Bible and the King James Version. And I was right there on the King James Version, but I just didn't think I could shoo you things well enough (laughs) in it. And knowing we were going through the Hebrew Scriptures, there were a handful of passages. There was no way I was going to be able to reach without busting up. So, 
Translation-wise, the New American Standard, actually, I, I believe, and I have researched and looked into this, is a little more accurate. Now, we could argue the point doesn't really matter. Both are very accurate translations. Both are valuable. Well, I use the NIV. That's okay. If you like a paraphrase, you go right ahead. You can use that. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I'm not. Um, John 16, 29 <laughs> says, His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. So again, John will use the word proverb. He'll use figures of speech. We hear Jesus using amazing figures of speech throughout the Gospel of John, but he will not tell a single Parable. Search if you will. No recorded parables in the Gospel of John. Not one. Jesus uses other things. John uses other things to express the reality of God and of who Jesus is. The seven magnificent I Am statements of Jesus. Beginning with, I am the bread of life. Now you could say, well, that's kind of a parable. Well, yeah, it kind of is. But he doesn't tell it as a parable. He just says, I am the bread of life. Let me lay bread alongside of what it really means for you to have sustenance and provision. That's me, he says. I am. And he says several other. And we're going to point out all the I am statements as Jesus goes through. There are several portraits of Jesus, but no parables by Jesus. John leaves that to the other guys. Why? Because he didn't set out to write a survey of Jesus' life. What John set out to do, and you know this by now, is to reveal God in Jesus. And I hope you all hear this this morning. His intention is that we see and understand the divine in Jesus. Not, not a divine that any man can accomplish or reach. Not an Oprah Winfrey divine. A true divinity. God in the flesh in Jesus. And so John begins to show this. By the way, there's something else missing in the Gospel of John. Another word that he will never use. And it is the word miracle. Not once... Well, he used the word miracle in this gospel. Well, Rick, we know there are miracles in the gospel. The water to wine, healing of the nobleman's son. I mean, we've seen several of these miracles. How can he not use the word miracle? Well, very easily, the word miracle used by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, anytime you see it translated, is dunamis. Miraculous power. John comes along, and rather than using dunamis, he uses the word simeon. Signs. He never once says miracle, but every time he says signs. Why? Because the signs are the parables. The parables are in the signs. Seven of them as we have been talking about. Seven signs, seven miracles, seven wonders of Jesus that reveal the nature of God in Jesus. That's why John includes them. And this morning we come to the next one. And I remind you how John comes toward the conclusion of his gospel, John 20, verse 30. He says, many other signs, Simeon, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Let me tell you something that my son Hayden and I were talking about yesterday. The whole idea of inviting someone to church is not about getting them on our team. 
It's not about trying to help someone be like-minded. It's not like saying, hey, I like this band and I want you to listen to them so that you can like this band like I like this band. The whole reason why you introduce anybody to Jesus is not so that they become like you, it's so that they can know who Jesus is and become like Him. And so they have an opportunity of accepting and receiving eternal life. That's why we talk about Jesus, not to increase membership at a church. And not to make other people like us. That, that so bothers me. Because I've heard it from non-believers many times. Why do you want me to be like you? I don't want you to be like me. <laughs> a place for everything and everything is... You don't want to be like me. But I hope you will consider Jesus. I hope you will look at Him. And whether your foot ever graces the door of this particular church is completely beside the point. The issue is Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Are you saved by Jesus? And if not, why not? Why not consider Him? Are you really content to say, this is it. I die and that's it. I'm not. And so we talk about Jesus, and John gave us these seven signs because it was so on John's heart. The passion and the love and the grace of God was so in John that as he wrote his gospel, he said, i got to show them Jesus so that they can look at these signs, and in looking at them, believe in Him, and by believing in Him, have life in His name. And that's why the signs are here. And that really has changed my approach to every single one of the miracles of Jesus. But especially here in John, as I read them, my first thought now is, what does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about the nature of Jesus and who He is? And I want you to keep that in mind as we look at the fifth sign this morning. We're already at the fifth out of seven. But before we get there, think back to the fourth sign. We talked about it last week. Jesus miraculously fed a multitude of as many as 10 to 15,000 people. And the very next day, He gives this this beautiful teaching. It's all the rest of John chapter 6. We looked at Wednesday night. He ties in to that living parable of the bread basket lunch. Gives them that miracle and the next day begins to talk to them. Shows them the sign. And the next day reveals, I am the bread of life, He says. It's me. You know, you ate that bread, but that's not going to sustain you for eternity. I will. I am the bread of life. Well, the people gave him a crummy response. (laughs) But before all that, before he teaches them, before all that happened, on the day of that fourth sign of that miracle, as they stuffed the loaves down their gullets... And began to look around and realize something big was taking place. They started to get excited. When they saw, as we talked about Wednesday, that this truly was a power lunch, they started to get stirred up. The crowd. They got so pumped that as we talked about last week, they called for the coronation of Jesus as king. we got to make him king. It's got to happen now. He's the guy. Or at least a military ruler. You know, if, if not king, then military ruler. We need, we need a figurehead, you know. We need a mockingjay. <laughs> For those of you who have done the whole Hunger Games thing. We need a figure here. We need a leader. We need someone to get behind. And they're all thinking, it's Jesus. Look at this power. Look at what he's doing. 
Now add to that, Bible students, remember what was taking place on this particular day of the feeding of the 5,000. The 12 were just fresh back from their very successful Galilean preaching tour. They'd gone all over the Galilee, Galilee, casting out demons, preaching repentance, and everybody was excited. And now the crowds are excited, and Jesus has done this wonderful sign. And the ministry of Jesus at this moment, as at its height, it is surging. The people are coming to Jesus in waves. The apostles are swelling with pride and expectation at Jesus' next move. And what does He do? If you're taking notes, jot this down. Jesus calms the tempest. Jesus calms the tempest. Verse 15, So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king, withdrew again to the mountain by Himself alone. Now when evening came, His disciples went down to the sea. After getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. Before his men even lowered an oar, Jesus calmed the tempest on the shore. The storm was whipped up right there on the shoreline and Jesus hushed the hype. He halted the hysteria. He paused the political pressure. He did exactly the opposite of of what any candidate running for the presidency would do. The more hype, the better. The more the crowds are stirred up, the better. The greater the tempest, the higher the waves, the heavier the wind. Yes, let's get rolling. Let's pull everybody in. And Jesus said, I'm going to go pray. You guys get in the boat. Let's end this thing. He disperses the crowd. He takes it down several notches. Now, if you lay alongside the story, Matthew and Mark's versions of the same story, they tell us a couple of things. They tell us that immediately, Matthew 14, 22, He made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of Him to the other side while He sent the crowds away. Now, John doesn't contradict that. If you read this, John 15, 16, and the first part of 17, it's not a contradiction of that. What John does is in verse 15, he gives a big picture uh, statement. He, he, he tells what's essential, why Jesus did what He did, perceiving they were intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king. He withdrew. Now that's what Jesus did, what He was about to do. But then verses 16 and 17 are incidental how it all played out. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. After getting into the boat, they started to cross to Capernaum. Jesus made them get in the boat. Jesus made them head out to sea. He disperses the crowds and he goes up to pray alone because he knew that they wanted to make him a king. So that's how it all plays out together and it works together very well. But notice what Matthew said. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. The word made in the Greek is anankadzo, and it means compelled or forced. And read that way, it's very interesting. He forced his disciples, he forced the twelve to get get in the boat, Peter. James, in the boat. John, come on, guys. Get in the boat. Go. He quickly corrals them into this little skiff and tells them to shove off. It's apparent from Jesus having to force their departure that they did not want to go. 
that what's happening there on that shoreline is you've got a group of guys, disciples of Jesus, again, fresh off their powerful ministry tour, who are now watching the crowds. And if we were there, and if I may impose a little assumption here, they were all going, this is it. This is it. You think maybe they were part of or getting caught up in the militant mob mentality? And so Jesus said, get in the boat, guys. Shove off. He compelled them. He forced them. He made them. And they did not want to do it. Otherwise, He wouldn't have had to make them get into the boat. Have you ever been compelled or forced by someone or or something beyond your control and against your will? And what I mean by that is, is just that sense, I've got to do this, but I really don't want to. Now, sometimes that's just a moral decision. Sometimes you know you've got a right or wrong answer, and the right answer is not something you want to do because it's not as fun as the wrong answer, but you're going to do what's right because you feel compelled to do so. You know, the world calls that a conscience. We call that the spirit of the living God. But this idea that you might be directed, even not against your will, because ultimately the apostles did row, Ultimately, they did get in the boat. They did accept the compelling of Christ. But they didn't want to. Are there times in your life where you do not want to do what you know God is compelling you to do? Well, maybe this will help. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 says all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him what have you done now listen that is not to say we don't have free will it's just to say that his will will be done God's will will be Accomplished. Let me give you an example of this from another place in Scripture. Paul used a great word for the way God directs us in his own personal testimony. He's on the Damascus Road. You may recall the story. Paul, who is a persecutor of Christians, is on the road heading into Damascus and on the way there has that great vision of Jesus, blows him away, knocks him down. And Acts 26.14, Paul says, When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Shaul, Shaul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says this, and I love this line. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Goats? Cattle prods. You know, those sharp sticks used for directing livestock. And Jesus tags Paul. And I really wonder about this. If Paul's conscience wasn't, if the Spirit wasn't, even before he had the encounter with Christ, poking him as he's walking along the road to Damascus. And Paul, being the Jew that he was, trying to push this out of his mind, trying not to think about it, but he's getting goaded. He's kicking against the goads. He does not want to go the direction that he's starting to feel compelled. And then Jesus shows up and says... It's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to resist my will. Resistance is futile. (laughs) Having a hard time, Paul? The natural man or the natural woman, again, might just call them nudges in the conscience. But the spiritual man says, i got to check in my spirit about that. 
Something's not right about that, and I don't think the Lord wants me to do that. We use that language a lot. We say, you know, God's telling me that's not a good idea. And people say, God's telling you. Well, you talk to God? I I hear Him all the time. You hear God? Yeah. Specifically, I hear Him in my spirit. I'm not saying that every single day I hear His audible voice, but I hear His intentions. I hear His will. His spirit testifies with my spirit. And so Paul's got this situation going on. And same with the apostles. If they hadn't been obstinate, Jesus would not have had to make them get into the boat. Sometimes we need a stick. And sometimes we need a storm. Now, how would you feel if you were one of the twelve? You've just gotten into the boat and now you are sailing away from the rock star welcome on shore. Why are we rowing instead of ruling? Why are we in this boat instead of out there with the people? This is our moment. How come Jesus gets to have all the fun? You know, I mean, what were they thinking as they rowed off? I wonder if they were a little disappointed, disillusioned. I thought this was the moment. Doubtful. It's not what I thought was going to happen. I can almost see them. I mean, imagine, if you will, standing on the shore and watching the twelve as Jesus compels them to row off. And they go off into kind of the, the misty sea of the Galilee. And there they go. And I, I can see them looking back forlornly like little children over the stern. <laughs> Cluelessly floating out into a calm evening sea. Sometimes we need a stick. Sometimes we need a storm. And if there was any doubt in any of their minds in that moment as to the true authority and intentions of Jesus, that doubt would be washed away in a matter of hours by the glorious sign to follow on the sea. Verse 17, continuing on, said, It had already become dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind that was blowing. Stirred up. The word in the Greek, diagiro, means to rise up in agitation. The sea was agitated. Or as George Costanza would say, the sea was angry that night, my friends. Like an old man trying to send back soup in a deli. If you haven't seen the marine biologist episode of Seinfeld, you just need to Google that scene. Just saying. The sea was stirred up. How does that happen in the Sea of Galilee? If you've ever seen the Sea of Galilee, you might wonder that because it looks like such a peaceful, calm lake. And it is just a lake, as we talked about last week. Lake Kinneret, there in northern Israel. 13 miles long by about 8 miles at its, wi- eight miles at its, at its widest. The Sea of Galilee pools in a basin 680 feet below sea level. Lowest freshwater lake in the world. The lowest saltwater sea is the Dead Sea, both there in Israel. Interesting. 680 feet below sea level, the air is heavy in the Galilee. It's still and it's warm. On the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee are the mountains of Gadara, the Golan Heights. That's where Jesus and His apostles were at the moment before He tells them to head out to sea. And what happens is the Golan and those mountains, Gadara, they rise sharply and steeply and they form kind of a weather wall. 
You know, for us it would be Mount Vernon. <laughs> the, the weather kind of crosses over the islands and just stays right there. You know, hits the hits the hits the mountains and, and gets stuck. And so you've got this weather wall on the one on the eastern shore of the Galilee. On the western shore of the Galilee, you have all these craggy hills going from the Mediterranean out all the way across to the Sea of Galilee. And that cold Mediterranean air comes rushing through these crags and these and these wind tunnels, really they're called the horns of Hattin. And the wind comes blasting through there and rushes headlong into the warm, still air of the Galilee. What do you think happens? Instant storms. Tempests. And they can rise up immediately without any warning. Suddenly, you can be in the midst of a storm on the sea. I have waited every Israel tour for that to happen. It hasn't happened yet. But I'm praying for it. So it stirs up these gale force storms. So Jesus heads up into the mountains for a little quiet time and he sets a course for the apostles directly into an angry storm. He doesn't even go with them. He puts them in this little 12-man skiff. Go, guys. And you ever feel like that? Like he's just not going with me. He's got me in the middle of this mess. Where is he? And that's something that People in a doubtful state or a non-believing state love to say, Where's God? Where is He in all this? If there is a God, how come? Verse 17 tells us again, Jesus had not yet come to them. So they're out there. The storm's coming up. He hadn't yet come to them. We know He's going to, but they don't know He's going to. All they know is they are in the midst of a mess. What's funny to remember is they had already been in a storm with Jesus. This is now the second storm we know revealed to us in the Gospel stories. Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapter 4 tells us in the first storm, Jesus was with them. He was in the boat. He was asleep in the, in the stern of the boat, in the back. But at least He was there, you know? At least He was in the boat. And as the sea gets wild and everything, they're able to wake Him up. Save us! Don't you see what's going on here? And He says, Hush! Same word he speaks to the demons, by the way. Hush. And he calms that storm. This time they're on their own. This time he's not even in the boat. He's not even in the sea. He's back on shore. Why? Why would Jesus be with them in the last storm, but absent from this one? Kind of an obvious question. Remember, his intention with these followers is faith training. They are in faith training. So the first storm, it would be important for Him to be there. To help them through. To show them, by His power, He can take care of them. He can get them across the sea. No problem. Now they're in the second storm. What are they going to believe? How are they going to handle it? And every single one of the storms of our lives is part of the process of faith. And you may say, boy, in that storm, I just knew He was there. He was present. I experienced Him. His his presence was overwhelming. The calm, the peace I had in that storm was great. And now I'm in this storm. Where is He? I am not feeling this. Maybe He's a little more withdrawn. Why? Faith. Because He's still training. He's teaching. He's leading. And by the way, He's never completely absent. In this same Story, this same sign, the same miracle. Mark 6.48 tells us Jesus was watching them from the heights. You can do that. From the Golan Heights, you can see the entire Sea of Galilee. 
laid out before you. And so he's watching. And they're struggling. And he's praying. What a fantastic, beautiful picture that is for us. He's fully aware of them. He saw them. He's praying for them. And there they are in the midst of the Galilee and they are just spinning in the storm. They're not going anywhere. They get three or four miles out and they're just spinning around. And literally for hours. And he's watching. Let me ask you this question. Do you think that Jesus was unaware of the evening forecast? (laughs) Do storms ever catch him by surprise? If not, then there's a more disturbing premise to this story. Second thing to note, after Jesus calmed the tempest on shore, now, secondly, Jesus compels His followers into the storm. He knew where He was sending them. He knew a storm was going to hit that night. He knew they were going to be stuck in the wind and the waves and the tempest. He knew it and He sent them anyway, intentionally, just as with the fish and the loaves, which back in verse 6 tells us He knew what He was intending to do. Remember, John is picking each one of these signs specifically to say, this shows us something of Jesus. With the fish and the loaves, He knew He was going to do it, but He was testing the disciples to see how they would manage Now they're in the sea, and he knew what he was going to do. Why'd you do it, Lord? I mean, I understand the idea of getting them out. I get that there's a political, you know, uh, problem happening there on shore. I get that people were all stirred up, and Jesus did not want his apostles to be part of that. Okay, that makes sense. How about a little stroll around the side of the lake? Why put them in the boat? Dangerous depths. Require divine detours. Dangerous deaths require divine detours. What do you mean? I mean the apostles were out of their depth on the shore. This was something beyond them. As we talked about, they were in the midst of this mob mentality and they didn't even realize it. Getting caught up, getting stirred up in a storm on land. And folks, I have yet to see a mob make a good decision. Now, my daughter, Honor Marie, keeps telling me, Dad, someday I just want to form an angry mob. (laughs) I think you know what you're talking about. She just thinks that's a great idea. You know, she's seen Beauty and the Beast and the villagers with the pickets. I want to go make an angry mob. Can we go make an angry mob? Anytime something goes wrong, you know. She hears me ranting and raving about something in Washington. And she says, Dad, let's go get an angry mob. (laughs) I'm like, give it time. Give it time. Psalm 14, verse 2 says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Listen, together they have become corrupt. And that's exactly how it works. Together we become corrupt. Together we don't make the best decisions. Together, sometimes the committee is the wrong... Well, let me say, most of the time a committee is the wrong idea. God doesn't work in committees as much as He does... Individuals. Because we get stirred up and we start to ping off each other's ideas and off we go in a wrong direction unless that committee is bent on prayer. And so we must take care even in our fellowship that our eyes remain upon Jesus and that as we gather up in groups and we team up to do ministries and different things that we don't in our togetherness do the wrong thing. 
But that we are individually seeking Jesus and listening only to Him. Now again, I get the idea He had to move them out. But why send them into the onslaught of the coming storm? Why compel them into the storm? And this is the faith question of the story. It's the one that so many face. Why me, Lord? Why the struggle? Why this problem? What did I do to deserve? Stop. That's where we got to stop. The second you're having a crisis in your life and the thought comes to mind, what did I do to stop? Because you're missing the whole reason He compelled you into the boat in the first place. It's so easy to get caught up in the whirlwind of the soul. You know, spinning out questions and doubts and thoughts that only take me down, only increase doubt, only increase despair. Psalm 131, verse 1, one of my favorite of all the Psalms where David says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. There are so many things in our lives, gang, that we get all wrapped around the axle about. And you know what? It's stuff that's too difficult for us. It's not something I'm going to solve. It's not something I can fix. And so I just spin around in the middle of the sea instead of saying, why does Jesus have me here? What is He doing here? If life is beyond you, it is never beyond Him. There are a couple of reasons I believe Jesus sent His boys straight into the storm. I'll give you two quick reasons. Number one, a divine detour. Divine detour. Listen, they needed to strain at the oars. They needed to pull back from the land. They needed a distraction from the ways of man to the purposes of God. They needed to be completely pulled out so they wouldn't be able to think about king-making and politics. Jesus rips them out of that scene and doesn't just leave them on a walk where they can discuss it and think about it. He throws them into a situation where there's nothing they can do but row for their very lives. I promise you that Peter and Andrew were not having a conversation about what had just happened on shore. What do you think about the crowd, what the crowds are saying? I think it's a great idea and I think we ought to compel Jesus to... You know, that didn't happen. It was row, Peter, row! Things were out of their control. 1 Corinthians, listen to this, I've never thought about it this way before. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is as common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. A way out. A way of escape. But sometimes God's escape route from your temptation is right into the storm. I've always thought God provides a way of escape and suddenly life is just easier. No. Sometimes the very storms of your life, the messes and the catastrophes, follow what would have been a real bad decision if you had continued going where you were. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to take away your will, but I'm going to direct your steps. Let me put you in a different situation so you stop thinking the way you're thinking right now. Because how you're thinking right now is a real storm that will drown you So He sends you into the storm. He throws you into a problem that is greater than the one you had before. And that's the way out. Only God can think along those lines. 
to send us into a storm detours us away from the soul. That is the mind, the soul man. Distracts us from the lure of human exceptionalism. Deepens our faith, develops endurance. James so beautifully writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But know this as well, that He may give you an escape route from temptation right into a storm, but know that in that storm, whether you see Him or not, He's got His eyes on you. He is watching. He is fully aware. He is on the heights interceding. Hebrews 7.25 He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. He's praying for them. That's why Jesus went alone up onto the mountain. To pray for them. Because He knew they were coming out of this situation and going into another one. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. But the fire is exactly where they needed to be. So Jesus is up there praying for them. What a marvelous picture. Now there's another greater reason for Jesus to send His followers, both then and now, into a storm. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But in the story, continuing on, first Jesus calms the storm on land. Then He compels them into the storm. Thirdly, Now, Jesus comes to them on the sea. Verse 19. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, remember the Galilee is about eight miles across at its longest, so they're about midway. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. Yeah. If you've heard this story a hundred times, if you grew up going to church and heard the story over and over, Jesus walking on the sea, if you saw it on flannel graph as a kid, I think this generation severely is lacking because they had no flannel graph. (laughs) If you've seen it portrayed in pictures, if you've heard it preached before, the downside is that we get used to the idea of Jesus walking on the sea. Have you tried it? The closest I've ever come is the Dead Sea. Which you can't walk on, but you can float, and it's amazing. But seriously, it's Matthew tells us, Matthew 14, it's the fourth watch of the night. That means it's between 3 and 6 a.m. So it's in the depth of the night. It's at the darkest hour. And what should have been a three-hour tour <laughs> is now an eight- or nine-hour nightmare. They have been straining at the oars. If it was evening when they got into the boat, they rowed out. Normally a row across the Galilee gang, if they were doing this on, in fair weather, a couple of hours maybe, to get from one side to the other, it's now been eight or nine hours. And they're just spinning. And they're not going anywhere. And they're getting exhausted. Add to that, remember what we, what we saw before, Passover was near. So what does that tell us? It means the new moon is coming up. So you've got this this silvery glow, the paschal moon they call it, over agitated seas that are now eerily lit up with a ghostly silver glow on the waters and here comes this guy walking on the sea. No wonder they were terrified. No wonder they were frightened. They had never seen this before. Neither have we. Now, some have tried to water down this sign. 
They have. Some have looked at this and they say, perhaps, perhaps they were blown near the North Shore and Jesus was just walking in the shallows and it looked like He was walking on the sea. If that were the case, why were they so terrified? Why didn't they just say, Jesus, throw us a rope, man! Why didn't they just hop out of the boat if they were that close to the northern shore? Well, maybe they couldn't see it because of the storm and all that was going on. Okay, then why did Matthew write in Matthew 14.24 the boat was already a long distance from land? They were in the middle of the sea. Boat spinning. And by the way, something else is missing from John's version of this story that Matthew tells about. Mark doesn't even tell us about it. And that is when they see him walking on the water. You remember what Peter does? Lord, if it's you, let me come out to you. Jesus goes, dude. All right. I'm paraphrasing. That's the NIV version. So (laughs) so he steps out of the boat and he walks out to Jesus. You know the story. The waves are big. And Peter looks at the waves. And down he goes. And Jesus grabs him. And then they walk together back to the boat. It's a great story. John doesn't include it at all. Why not? It's a good one, John. Did it not happen? No, it happened. Why doesn't Mark include it? That's interesting. Mark's gospel is probably based on Peter's preaching. And maybe it was a story that Peter just didn't repeat a whole lot. (laughs) I was walking and then down I went because, you know, I'm kind of an idiot. No, I don't know. Or perhaps knowing... Peter's walk as we see it in Scripture, more likely Peter just didn't preach about himself a whole lot. So Mark doesn't talk about it. John doesn't talk about it. Why does John leave it out? Here's why. Because the story is not about Peter and the apostles. The story, the sign, the fifth sign, is not just a divine detour. It is about Jesus Christ. And the second primary reason I believe Jesus sent them into the storm was to make a divine declaration. He had just told them on land, get into the boat, go. We're not doing this crowd mentality thing. We're not gonna, I'm not raising up as a king right now. But he was the king. He was, is God in the flesh. And so he sends them out into the storm, sends away the crowd, and then he does something that only God could do. Then he does something that is such a revelation to them. It's remarkable. They see him, they're frightened, they, they cry out, and verse 20, he said to them, it is I! Ego eimi in the Greek. What's that? I am. They're terrified. And he says, I am. I am that I am. Same exact thing that God said to Moses when Moses asked his name. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. In the Greek, it's ego eimi. It's in every single one of the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am, he says. Now, there is some argument, I'll tell you this, between scholars as to whether or not he's actually making the I am statement or whether he's just saying, it's me. Because ego and me can be used casually for, it's me. Okay? Here's my point. doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter because either way, here is Jesus walking on the water in the midst of a wild and raging storm. He is the great I Am. He is I Am. And there's no way you can miss that if you're in the boat and you see Him coming and He says, Ego me, you know this is not your ordinary rabbi. This is not your typical man. This is someone who has power over the elements. And maybe when they see him and realize it's Jesus, they start to think back to the first storm when he said, hush, and it was calm. But Jesus gives this divine, remarkable declaration and his presence, his presence dispels their fear like nothing else. Look at what else he says. It is I. I am. Do not be afraid. Literally, and note this, the phrase is, do not go on being afraid. And I think that's so important to hear. Do not go on being afraid. Don't, Christians, don't keep wearing that stuff. Don't keep doubting. Don't let fear seen or unseen, define your life. If you're not a Christian, if you're not sure about this stuff, don't keep spinning around in the middle of the lake. Don't go on being afraid. How many, brothers and sisters, how many of you are still fearing past sin? How many are still worried about previous problems? How many still find themselves fearing at times in the world in which we live? How many are still worried and upset by disarmed devilry? You see, Paul tells us that they have been disarmed. On the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers. And I've told you before, it's one of my favorite verses because I think of Monty Python. You know, in the, in the Black Knight. It says, none shall pass, and they try to pass. I've told you this before, and you look at me every time, the way you're looking at me right now. <laughs> How do we go from the great I am on the sea to Monty Python? <laughs> place for everything, and everything in its place. <laughs> he cuts off his arms, the Black Knight, his arms get cut off, and he goes, come back here! <laughs> bleed on me you know it's a great scene (laughs) come back here I'll bite your kneecaps anyway (laughs) so that stuff's been disarmed why is it that Christians fear anything same reason the apostles were fearing for their lives in the boat we forget Jesus calms the storm We forget this water is nothing to him. He can walk on it if he wants to. This stuff that would overturn the ship becomes... Listen to Alexander McLaren and what he says. He is the mighty Christ to whose gentle footfall the unquiet surges are as a marble pavement. And who draws near in the purposes of his love unhindered by antagonism and even using opposing forces as the path for his triumphant progress. Now watch how this all ends. So verse 21. They were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. There's an overlooked miracle right there. 
Have you noticed that before? They were in the middle of the sea, gang. They see Jesus, they receive Him into the boat, and next thing they know, immediately, and by the way, the Greek word for immediately is immediately. (laughs) They are there. They receive Jesus into the boat, and immediately they land. Boom, they land. He gets into the boat, and then he gets out of the boat. (laughs) And they're like, dude. (laughs) And here's the key. You want an immediate change in your life? You receive Jesus into the boat. And it immediately changes. Non-believer, the second you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, immediately you are saved. And there is no pause, and there is no waiting, and there, there is no going, okay, you accepted me, now let's see if you can prove yourself to me. Show me that you're serious about this. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, saved. Immediately, suddenly, assured. John says in John 1.12, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in His name. I love that John writes they received Him. They were willing to receive Him into the boat. That's the key. Receive Him into your life. Those who believe in His name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God, He calls His children. Immediately. The whole story here, is a marvelous picture of salvation. Of the way that Jesus works, both literally and spiritually, in this sign we see this living parable of God's plan to get us off the tempestuous shores of the world and across the stormy seas by faith and immediately to the land where we are going. Now listen, one last thing. I read this And it says immediately the boat was at the land. And I said, oh, that it were so. And I have had this thought many times in my Christian life and my following after Jesus. I just wish that I could have said, Jesus, I receive you and been immediately on land. I wish I could have said, Lord, I I believe in you and I'm in heaven. You ever ask how long, O oh Lord? How long do we have to wait? I don't mean to be impertinent, Father, but this has not been a good week and I'd really like to just be home. Won't you come get us? Won't you come make this whole crazy, insane, stormy world end and make it right? I love the immediateness of the boat on land. Listen. 500 years before Jesus walked the earth or the water. A psalm was written. We believe it was written in the days of Ezra and the exiles, which, by the way, would be a great name for a rock band. Psalm 107. Psalm 107 is a a post-exilic psalm. Listen to these words. Let me just read this to you. Verse 24. They have seen the works of the Lord. And His wonders in the deep. He spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. 
their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and He brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So He guided them to their desired haven. A remarkable prophecy of what we just read. 500 years before it happened. Talking about Him calming the sea, hushing the storm, and bringing them into their desired haven. You see, for Jesus, there is a place for everything, and everything in its place. There is a desired haven. There is a place prepared. And I believe, no, I I can state unequivocally that once we get there, our arrival will seem immediate. That it doesn't right now. That we may be straining at the oars, that the wind is whipping up, and we may feel like we're in the midst of it all. But when He comes into the boat, once we arrive at the desired haven, it will seem in that moment like nothing has gone by time-wise. That we'll be in His presence going, I just accepted Him as my Lord. I mean, that was just just now. Immediate salvation. You see, Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. And Jesus said in Revelation 22.20, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, that immediate moment when we come into Your presence, I look forward to that every day. And I love my life and I am so thankful for all the blessings, but Lord, I know when it happens, it's going to happen so fast. Our heads won't even have time to spin. That You will bring us to our desired haven. A place, Jesus, you said you went to prepare for us so that where you are, we may be also. Father, it's a simple story and yet one of the more powerful that we read in the Gospels. The revelation, Jesus, of I am on the sea. Of God in the midst of the storm of You using the antagonistic path for Your purposes. And Lord, it makes me so thankful to You. And at the same time, in awe of Your saving grace, of Your magnificent love. So Father, at this point, there's just one thing for me to pray. I pray, Lord, that You will make this story real in our hearts. That for my brother or my sister who is doubting or struggling or in tempestuous sea right now, that You will be received. And peace will come. That, Father, for for the person not certain of You, both this service and next. Father, I just pray that today will be the day a decision will be made to just give in 
and to willingly receive you into the heart. We wait on your spirit. We pray direct us. We come bowing before your divine power and grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.